You're now listening to the Tax Smart REI podcast, your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into this episode of the Tax Smart REI podcast. Today we're joined with special guest Whitney Elkins Hutton, who is Director of Investor Education at PassiveInvesting.com and host of the Passive Investing Made Simple YouTube show and podcast. She's also a partner over 800 million in real estate, including over 6,500 residential units, seven express car washes, and more than 2,200 self-storage units across 11 states and experience flipping over $5 million in residential real estate. And today we're going to be talking about how you can not lose money as a past investor. And we might also touch on the five freedoms of life. So really excited to dive into today's episode. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. Are you a limited partner investing in real estate syndication and funds? Then Tax Strategy Foundation for Limited Partners will change everything for you. Navigating the intricate landscape of jargon, legal documents, and taxes can often feel like deciphering a complex code. But Tax Strategy Foundation for LPs has been meticulously crafted to be your guiding light, empowering you with the knowledge and tools that you need to make informed decisions and lock the full potential of your investments. Led by partnership tax expert Caitlin Deaver, who has extensive experience with real estate syndication and fund tax issues, this course distills down years of knowledge into digestible, actionable insights. She breaks down common terminology and how you can interpret operating agreements, PPMs, federal and state K-1s, and much more. Don't let confusion or uncertainty hold you back from realizing the full potential of your investments and get ready to embark on the journey towards financial clarity, savvy decision-making, and a stronger, more secure investment future. You can enroll in Tax Strategy Foundation today by visiting www.taxsmartinvestors.com slash limited partners. Oh yes, I almost forgot. Kaylin will be hosting an exclusive live Q&A for students on September 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern. This is your opportunity to get your questions answered by the tax expert herself. Again, you can enroll in this course today by visiting www.taxmartinvestors.com slash limited partners. We'll see you there, but for right now, we'll jump right into today's episode. We're back. Whitney, thank you for taking the time to come on the show today. Would you be able to give our listeners a little information on your background and how you got involved in real estate? Yeah, well, I got involved in real estate completely by accident. So I, you know, didn't go to school for this uh, in order to become the director of investor education here at PassiveInvesting.com. Instead, you know, in 2002, I started off, I bought a house with a significant other. And about a month later, the relationship fell apart and I had a house. And, you know, what do I do? I thought I was going to lose everything, that this house was going to sink me. And I stepped at fully roommates. I completed the rehab on the property. And 11 months later, I decided to sell the property. And it wasn't until I sold the property, I was like, and I walked away from the closing table with like $52,000 in my pocket tax-free. I was like, wait a second, hold on guys. I started calculating, you know, that I'd actually been making money every single month and not losing money because my roommates is now called house hacking and live in flipping. Uh, you know, but my roommates have been paying the bills and I flipped the house and made a large chunk of money you know, quite frankly, almost as much as I was making at my full-time job that had me traveling sometimes 80 hours a week. And I was like, oh my gosh, how many more of these projects can I do? And so over the next few years, I did several more house hacks and live and flips on my own. And then 
uh, my husband started joining me in kind of what I say, my antics. And then we discovered that we needed to start holding on to these properties in order to create cash flow so we could, you know, create reliable income and potentially like, you know, reduce how much we work. So we grew a portfolio of 36 rental properties and then um, hit our next ceiling of achievement where we needed to go bigger faster. I was managing 36 rental properties, working full time, had taking care of a small child, and then also, you know, some family members. And like, okay, we need to start buying multifamily buildings. So went in on a JV partnership on a 52 unit building and then eventually general partnership on 10 other buildings. And you know, stepped into the private capital arena and uh, raised for 29 additional deals. But at the end of the day, what we realized between our own personal investments and investing passively is that, you know, really the passive income really helped us unlock, you know, financial freedom so we could continue to pivot and grow our own personal portfolio. Awesome. Awesome. It's a phenomenal story. I think a lot of people have have a very similar story. They start doing real estate deals and start to realize how lucrative it really is. And then all of a sudden they kind of get hooked and that's it. They're stuck, um, if, you, if you will, you know, in a good way. So I know you're heavily involved in the passive investing space. What are some tips on how people can not lose money when investing passively? Yeah, well, you know, here's the thing is, that, uh, you know, somebody who's new to the space, you know, can go online and look up, you know, due diligence checklists, you know, these big long checklists that if you can, you know, essentially somebody tells you if you can check all the box, like your chance of losing money is, you know, slim to none. Um, Those type of tools are very useful, but I think you have to go back to understanding first as an investor, what your goals, risk, and timeline are. Because if I have one checklist, you know, and maybe my goal is building equity and Thomas, your checklist is about, you know, building cash flow, you know, we're going to underwrite deals two different ways. So I'm really seriously having a good heart to heart with yourself to understand what are my goals? What are my immediate goals, my long-term goals? What is that timeline horizon that I need to achieve these goals in? And then what kind of risk am I willing to take to hit those goals? Um, because that's where a lot of investors, I think, get it wrong right out of the gate is they get enamored by the deal because we've been trained to be the investor, right? Stocks, bonds, and mutual fund, you know, set your portfolio at 60, 40 or 80, 20, you know, stocks, equities and, or stocks, bonds, and just kind of forget it, right? We've been trained to look at the yield of an asset, but not really understanding who is running the asset? Who's the operator? Where are they invested? What type of asset class are they invested in? And then really understanding how does the deal actually work? So goals, risk, and timeline start there. And then we get into, you know, how do you vet the operator? Because it's all about who's running the deal. You can take an amazing multifamily building or an amazing express car wash, and you put it with a new operator that has no idea how to navigate this choppy water market. And it's going to, potentially not work out that great. Or you take a mediocre asset and you give it to, you know, place it with an operator that is extremely experienced, they're going to be able to make it shine. And so those are just some broad strokes on where to start. We can certainly dive down any of those rabbit holes, but I'd like to leave the listeners with a quick like eight point checklist that if they see any of these red flags in their deal, they should really take pause. Okay. First of all, you know, we already talked about the goals, risk, and timeline. Now we're getting into the operating the operator, the market and the deal, you know, first of all, like when you're evaluating the operator, if they have no experience or background in business or real estate at all, 
you know, I know everybody has to start somewhere, but you know, if they have no experience at all, or if somebody, they're not bringing in a strategic partner to help them manage the asset, that to me is a red flag. I mean, you know, most of the investors listening to your podcast have a choice on where they invest their money. Also, if the operator is just part-time, you know, their attention is going to be split between, you know, work and running the asset. So, um, and again, investors have a choice on, you know, who they invest with. And my preference is, you know, if I've spent all this time and energy and attention to earn a, the dollar to invest, I want somebody taking care of that money as if it's my money, not theirs. If there's only one managing partner, you know, in business, we call it succession planning, right? Like what happens if something happens to them? Um, So, you know, making sure that you're investing, you know, in a group that has multiple partners and preferably unrelated. Even if you got a husband and wife team and no additional partner on that team, they have a sick child. You know, of course, their time and attention is going to be directed to taking care of that sick child. Number four, if you're investing in a deal that has no preferred return or a preferred return with a general partner catch-up, which some people might scratch their head and go, what's a GP catch-up? We can talk about that in a minute. But that indicates to me that the general partnership, that operator is not creating alignment for the investor. Okay, So we always want to look for operators that are going to put the investor first as far as returns. And then, you know, there's a few other things when it comes to like red flags, when it comes to, you know, the deal, but modeling a performance in the deal or making the distributions a return of capital and not a return on capital Um, or not putting a co-investment in the deal, you know, above and beyond the acquisition fee. Or as we all learned this past like 12 to 18 months, investing in a deal where the loan is an adjustable rate loan with no sort of like safeguard at the top, like a, a um, interest rate cap. So those are just some red flags, but there, of course, there's like, you know, we can dive down, you know, the conversations that people need to be having with themselves before they go in on a deal as it relates to the operator, the market and the deal itself. Which of those would you say is most important? Like if I'm a newer investor looking to invest in various sponsors, I'm looking at this list and I'm going to ask all the questions, but what should I be paying especially close attention to? I think the bucket to pay closest attention to is going to be the operator, right? Do they have the knowledge, background, and expertise to manage the deal? Because when you invest passively, there's really only a past understanding your goals, risk, and timeline. There's only three things you can control. First is who you invest with. Second is where you invest. And then third is which deal you go into. And so I would always concentrate on that operator. You know, do they have that knowledge? the expertise, the team behind them? Do they have the track record or somebody on the team have the track record? You know, what is their communication style? How often are you going to, are they going to communicate with you? Are they going to give you financials? You know, are they going to treat you as a real business partner? Um, I always like asking the question, like what happens, you know, if things go wrong, right? Any operator that's been in business for any length of time has gone through COVID, (laughs) Some of the rebounds from COVID and, you know, they were in the South, they dealing with hurricanes, you know, they were out of Texas, they dealt with the power grid collapse um, of 2021. And then most recently, you know, with the run-up of interest rates from the Fed, I want to understand not so much have they ever been challenged, but how did they respond to those challenges? Those are the type of questions I like digging in on with operators. 
the certainly operator definitely the most important 100% agree with that and you got to do your due diligence on the operator ask them the tough questions see how they react see if they're responsive to you all that stuff matters when you're going to give your hard earned capital to your point before to somebody and you're not going to have much of them to say beyond that point how the business is going to be run and things like that so certainly the operator i also know the legal agreement is certainly important too um, and what you're signing what you're getting yourself into as the investor and i know you mentioned before the gp catch-up would you be able to kind of break down what a gp catch-up is so in simplest terms you know maybe a general partner is giving a preferred return where they're saying seven or eight percent of this deal goes to the limited partner you know and they get their they get made whole first but then what happens after that in that waterfall? Like, do you get your capital back? Does the, you know, what happens next? Um, do you start splitting profits? And GP catch-up really is where the general partner is sliding themselves right behind the preferred return or even ahead of the preferred return, which boggles my mind that, you know, we still see these agreements, you know, outlined like that today. But where I most commonly see it is the general partner gives a preferred return 7 or 8%. And then they say, oh, by the way, we get to get made up on our, 20% cash distribution or 30% cash distribution before the limited partner gets their return of capital. And so it doesn't create alignment. And again, you know, people have choices on how they invest. And while a general partner might, you know, make it feel more lucrative, like with the 80-20 split on the back end, you know, you really have to, as a limited partner, you really have to pick apart that legal agreement and really fully understand how does that waterfall work? Who gets paid what and when? And is your return, your preferred return, and your capital being secured before the general partner is getting to participate? If I'm understanding this correctly, right? Like, so GP catch up, if the general partner was really truly going to like believe in their deal, they wouldn't theoretically need the GP catch up. Is that kind of what I'm hearing? Yeah, that or, you know, or in the general partners, it, it can also be like a marketing tactic, right? If the general partner is offering a larger split, you know, equity split on paper, but they want to make sure they get their 20% before the full 80% gets paid out to the limited partner. You know, there's all different reasons why general partners do it. And the, here's the thing. It's not wrong. It is entirely viable structure and it works and it's permitted and, you know, under the 50 Regulation D, you know, with the Securities and Exchange Commission, whether it's a 506B or a 506C deal, it's you know entirely permissible as long as it's disclosed. But I think where you know most limited partners really need to learn how to protect themselves is understanding, as you already alluded to, Thomas, that private placement memorandum or you know the entire package, the subscription agreement, operating agreement, and the private placement memorandum, and really understanding. They can't just look at the operating memorandum and say, I know how this whole deal is working. They got to look at the legal paperwork and make sure that there's nothing being buried in the legal paperwork. Right. Right. Very important. Very important stuff. And I know you mentioned before too about the co-investment. I think this is kind of a little bit in line with what we're discussing here. Could you kind of break down what a co-investment is and why just investing the acquisition fee into the deal might not be in alignment with investor goals? Yeah. Again, this goes back to, does the operator believe in their deal? Are they going to participate in their own deal? So that's what the co-investment is. So the operating team, the general partners would be taking up a space in the limited partner portion of the capital stack. Okay, so the capital stack, you've got your senior debt position, which is usually a bank loan. Maybe you have some sort of mezzanine debt position. 
It could be a second loan from a bank, you know, supplemental loan or something like that. Or maybe it's a preferred return position that's also filled by limited partners. But essentially, they just gave a second loan to the property. And then you get into how you're splitting things within the common equity position. So that is really where we're trying to make sure that it's aligned. So the the general partners are contributing some of that capital stack in the common equity position. And the reason why I say above and beyond the acquisition fee is if a limited or if a general partner closes on the deal, they get their acquisition fee and they put it in there. Do they have skin in the game? No, I I would say say not really. So here's the thing. You can argue it both ways. Till the cows come home, right? You can you can say yes because you know the general partner said, "Hey, I took my acquisition fee, which could have like put food on my table and allowed me to go buy a car and like travel the world, but I put this in the deal because I believe it." I'm looking for an investment above and beyond that that actually you know says they're taking some of their profits and reinvesting it back into the business. Now, some operators when they're just starting out, they need the acquisition fee to actually scale their business to hire team members you know, to, to, to pay salaries, you know, all this thing to operate the business. So it's just a red flag for me. It's not necessarily saying, Hey, I'm never going to invest, but I want to understand why or why not somebody is co-investing or not co-investing in their deal and exactly how much they are. So for us, you know, passiveinvesting.com for context, we take up five to 10% of that portion of the limited partners portion of the capital stack. But the acquisition fee might, you know, account for like one and a half percent of that. So there's a significant portion above and beyond. We're always the our top investor in our own deal. Uh, that makes a lot of sense, and I think it's something that I know when I'm investing as an LP. That's something that I look for is is GP co investment. What amount are they putting in? Do they believe in the deal? I mean, kind of along the same lines. Maybe before we move off of the operator. Um, as a limited partner, you know, I know some syndicators, they're in the business of syndication. They need to consistently be doing deals in order to kind of stay alive, right? Like if they don't do deals, they're not making acquisition fees, they're not making asset management fees, et cetera. They can't sustain their business. As an LP, how do you know, like say, for example, the asset class is the right asset class to be investing in, say, a specific time? Because if I go to a multifamily syndicator, just for example, I would expect them to be doing multifamily deals when it may not be the best asset class to invest in at that period in the market cycle or whatever the reason may be. Like, How do you hedge against that as an LP? Oh, gosh. I mean, there's really like five questions in one there and in that one question. You know, first of all, let's say like, is it the right asset class at the right time? Let's just take multifamily. Multifamily, we've seen an amazing run up. I, you know, I was investing in multifamily in 2016-17. I'm like, can these prices go any higher? Right? We've been seeing cap rate compression for several years. And then it's even gotten, you know, a little frothier, you know, with the the raise in interest rates and just the type of debt that was being put on these properties in order to get them to cash flow. So, it all depends, right? That's kind of the classic answer in real estate. I think if you have the a right property that you're not overpaying for with the right debt structure on it that allows you to execute your business plan in a safe and secure manner, it could be the right asset for your portfolio if that matches your goals, risk, and timeline. However, like you alluded to, and you know, I saw this especially in 2020 into early 2021, operators were overpaying oftentimes for multifamily deals continuing to bank on the fact that asset prices would continue to skyrocket because they could increase the net operating income. Rents were exploding during COVID because of inflation. 
Um, is that trend going to continue? There are certain factors in the in the economic market that would indicate that we will, you know, potentially see in some markets rents start declining. But overall, in multifamily and multi in real estate, it's regional, right? Like what applies in New York doesn't necessarily apply in South Carolina, right? Two different economic markets that in some of these markets, rents are going to continue to increase. And so it might be a good time to invest in those markets. So to kind of put a pretty bro on it is multifamily, just to take it as an example, um, you know, the place to be, you have to understand, you can't just say multifamily globally, you have to understand the market in which you're investing in, the operator's business plan for the asset and the type of debt they're putting on it. And those three factors combined will tell the story if that asset belongs in your portfolio or not. Gotcha, gotcha. So it's like an LP, it's the operator, certainly the most important aspect of it, but there's more to the story than just, you know, what the operator is doing. You have to take a look at what markets you're investing in and you could maybe even to a degree, the overall cycle. And then from there, you have to choose maybe an operator that that would be investing in, in a way that is congruent with how you're seeing the world or how you're seeing where we're at in the market in that type of situation. Yeah. You know, here's a perfect example. Like for, you know, me, like I live in Boulder, Colorado. Um, I have yet to see in like the five past five years an asset really cash flow, a multifamily asset cash flow in the Denver market. We just can't raise the rents in those markets as quickly as they need to to rise in order to counterbalance, you know, the the cost of the loan or like the business plan to rehab those type of properties. Whereas if I'm investing in Charlotte, North Carolina, Columbia, South Carolina, even parts of Florida, Texas, I can achieve a business plan with a loan product that does make that a lucrative investment to be in. So it's very regional. Makes a ton of sense. What else have we not covered? What other things do past investors need to know to help protect themselves and not lose money? Well, we talked about the operator, you know, and the red flags, you know, just to kind of dive into the market. And we've already kind of picked this part a little bit. You have to understand the market. So, you know, where are the trends happening that are where rents are increasing, incomes are increasing, but housing prices, you know, especially if we're talking multifamily are still very affordable. You want to understand where all of the kind of like metrics are overlapping, but also you want to be in markets where your expenses aren't going to inflate. So you've got good tax structure, you know, that's pro-business. You have the ability to work with your tenants, you know, one-on-one. So I look for good landlord-tenant laws, you know, not, you know, not investing in areas that have like just a blanket way that you work with all your tenants and one size fits all solution. Then also like, you know, what, how is that market trending? Like, are you on the upswing with the path of progress? You know, crime coming down, poverty coming down. Are you at the top? And you're starting to see some exodus of like businesses and jobs, but that's what makes real estate very regional. So, you know, we're starting to see a lot of migration, you know, just as an example out of California into parts of Texas, into, you know, all the way across to the other seaboard. There was an amazing Axios article about, you know, a month ago that, you know, six states combined in the South actually make up more the GDP than the entire Northeast. So we're starting to see a huge migration. And so how can you put yourself in the path of progress by understanding those markets? No, that's that's very important. 
being in the path of progress, it's just, it makes everything easier when you're in the path of progress, right? If you're going against the current, not so easy. Market's definitely important. Now, if you're an LP, how much should a limited partner, how, how much should they be paying attention to the actual property itself? Because I know my like as a limited partner, you know, I might not know the nitty gritty of like the structural details of a property. How much is that? How much is as an LP, how much of that part do you have to worry about? I mean, you should worry about it, but that's the deal. And so that really comes secondary behind the operator in the market um, because the deal should be in the like location, location, location. It should be in the right metropolitan service area and the right submarket in that, that metropolitan service area. And then quite frankly, in the right part of town in that submarket, you know, not across the tracks, so to speak. Right. Right. So but now that you understand that, I mean, the first thing I would always like, no matter what, if the deal is multifamily, self-storage, express car wash, do a quick Google search, make sure that property actually exists. Okay. So that, that's kind of step number one. <laughs> I, and trust me, like we've all heard the, heard the horror stories of people investing in schemes where the property, and lo and behold, at the end, the property didn't actually exist or it was different than what was pictured. So, you know, just... Google Maps, just Google Map it. You know, you you can, you know, pay somebody locally 20 bucks to drive right through the property and snap some pictures just so you can be like, yep, that's the same building that I'm planning on, you know, investing my hard-earned capital into. But then you get down to the business plan. And this is where those 100-point checklists really get kind of a little overwhelming for people. You're looking for how to understand, does this, and I'm just going to give seven broad strokes here. How does this property, investing in this property, is it going to preserve my capital? Right. For us at PassiveInvesting.com, we look to invest in, you know, B plus class A properties just because 2019 and 2020, when we're starting to see, you know, supply chain compression, you know, labor shortages, we were making one percentage point more doing a value add strategy, but we're taking on a lot of risk, additional risk to achieve that one percent. So, you know, you know, look at that business plan. You know, how is it going to help you preserve your capital? Are there a lot of operational and capex reserves that the operator is setting aside to manage that asset. You know, are there sales comparables in the area that are higher than the asset that you're investing in? Um, then look how it's going to help you create cash flow, right? Um, where are rents today? Where can they grow to after the execution of the business plan? Does that rent growth seem reasonable? Like, are there other rent comparables in the market that it actually? give you a leading indicator that this plan can be achieved. Look at the equity positioning, right? Like what are all those equity levers that you can pull, right? So you can have natural market equity, you know, you know, just the natural market trends that produce equity for you. But I like looking for forced appreciation on a project. How can the operator actually increase the income, decrease the expenses and add additional streams of income to that property? Okay. What is their business plan? Does it seem reasonable too? Are they level setting the income that they can increase? Are they level setting the increase in expenses? Guys, insurance is going to go up in most areas in the United States. Taxes are going to continue to go up post COVID in most areas in the United States. You know, things are just getting more and more expensive. Are they accounting for that? How can we preserve the tax benefits associated with the real estate? This is something that just really blew my mind. And this is where you guys are the specialist. Um, but operators don't have to pass through all the tax benefits pro rata to the investor. Meaning like you can invest in a deal and they can say, hey, we're going to split the tax benefits 50-50. 
No, that's one of the reasons why you as a passive investor are investing in a deal is to get your fair share of the tax benefits. How how is the operator taking advantage of depreciation, accelerated depreciation, utilizing bonus depreciation? How are they utilizing 1031 exchanges? Um, Those are all the things that I look for in the business plan. And then we already talked about the smart use of lending. And also, what are their skills? Have they done this before? Have they executed this type of strategy before and been successful at it? Definitely important stuff. So I kind of like just to sum up what we've talked about so far. We have look at the operator, right? Look at the operator, how they performing, what their experience is, what their track record is. Look at the market. How is the market doing both at, you know, maybe at the macroeconomic level, but also at the individual market you're investing in? Is it landlord friendly? Uh, is it in the path of progress? Uh, then you're looking at the property. Is the property in the right location within that market, within that sub-market? What's the business plan for the property? Is there a value-add component? How are they going to force appreciation? And um, before you even look at all that stuff, and I forgot about the most important part, you have to have your goals, right? You have to know what your goals, what you're looking for, what you want to get out of the deal. If you're looking for appreciation and equity growth, but you're investing in a deal that's going to cash flow, well, then you might be a little upset that it's not hitting your return metric. So you really have to know what you're looking for first and foremost before you start this whole process. One really interesting thing you said about the tax benefits, it is super important to understand what the tax benefits are, because to your point, there could be a special allocation where you know I've seen deals where sometimes all the depreciation is allocated to the GPs. And we see deals where all the depreciation is allocated to the LPs and pretty much anything in between. So you really have to learn uh, and understand how to look at the operating agreement that you're signing, the PPMs, all these documents, super critical to analyze when you're making an investment decision. Yeah, no, of course. Here's the thing, especially what I my role is here at passiveinvesting.com. You know, somebody listening to this call, an investor listening to this call might go, wow, that's a lot I need to learn. Yes. And that's why you want to put yourself in community with people. That's why I have like my passive investing made simple masterclass show. Brandon was on it just like a few weeks ago, um, talking about taxes. And this is why I do our skills boot camps. It's to help people learn, you know, essentially crash course this in a way that they can, you know, understand. You know, how annoying is it? Like I I, I still have a little bit of stock. I have two stocks, by the way. My husband has a little bit more, but I have two stocks. But every year I get a prospectus and I get you know, a very thin paper, 20 page document that is in four point font. So they guarantee that I will never read that thing. Right. But that's all the information that I need to learn in order to invest. I try to make that really easy for people. And so I have, if you visit passiveinvestingwithwhitney.com, I have a free ebook for everybody that they can download that walks them through the seven steps, the seven areas they need to learn before they get into their first or next deals, just so they can do so with confidence. You can always get the master's degree in real estate, but like, you know, just to become, you know, a confident passive investor, you know, really just takes a little bit of time and knowledge. And I'm happy to help people achieve that. Absolutely. We're going to have to drop that in the show notes. But before we just shift to the next question here, I just want to remind everybody that Kaylin, Kaylin Deaver, who's on our PE team, she recently released a course for limited partners on how to interpret critical documents such as operating agreements, K-1s, uh, especially the tax aspects of all these, should really breaks it down in really great detail with a lot of good examples. So if you're wondering, how can I interpret my operating agreement? How can I interpret the tax aspects of all these things? Uh, you can check out that course by visiting www.taxsmartinvestors.com slash LP tax course, and you can learn more about that there. Uh, but I think I'm going to turn it over to uh, Brandon. Yeah. So Whitney, I think that you've got something called the five freedoms in life. I'd love for you to explain that for us. 
Yeah. So it's one of the reasons why I invest in real estate. And I wish this is my formula, but I think I've pieced it together from several people over time. You know, when you're understanding your goals, putting together your goals for investing in real estate or even passively in real estate, you have to understand your wants. Like, what do you want to do? For most people, it's achieving cash flow or some sort of nest egg. But then why do you want to do this? And for most people, when they start investing in real estate, they want to run from something. They want to get out of their, you know, working 40 hours a week, or they want to pay off the bills, or they want to take the kids on vacation, you know, something like that. But as you dig down deeper and continue to ask yourself why, you're generally going to land on one of five areas. And for most people, it's financial freedom, or they want freedom time, or they want freedom of choice or they want to have location independence, or they want to have that freedom to create an impact in the world. Now, here's the thing. Most people that I work with, they have a combination of those freedoms that they're trying to achieve. Like for me, initially it was financial freedom, but like once you check that box, now what? Like what freedom am I after now? For me, it's like freedom of my time and choice on how I spend that time. Great. I've put myself in a position for that. Great. Then I wanted location independence. Fantastic. I achieved that. Now I want to have the freedom to create the type of impact that I want to create in the world. And so, you know, those are the things that I think at the end of the day, people really should understand which of those freedoms they are truly at their heart that they're going after first, because that plays into your goals. You know, especially if you're an active real estate investor, you're buying single family properties, you know, or wanting to do fix and flipping or wholesaling understanding that why of what you're after will give you a good indication or a North star of what type of real estate in business that you should actually be building. So I talk to investors all the time that are like, I want to scale, you know, 30 single family properties because that's what I need to get out of my day job. I'm like, fantastic. Fast forward five or 10 years. Do you still want to be managing the property manager on those 30 single family properties? And they're like, well, heck no. I want to invest in somebody else's deal where I'm just getting mailbox money. I'm like, okay, great. Well, do we have to start with the 30 single family properties or can we jump a few steps ahead and go right into the passive investment? That's a good point. That's a good point because I can relate to that, right? Like if you have a full-time job and you're working, you're working and and now all of a sudden you go and acquire to your point, 10, 20, 30 rental properties. Now you just bought yourself another job, right? Now you have two full-time jobs. And then if you you leave one of them, well, now you just have your rental properties, you still have a full-time job. So if you really want to truly get passive, at some point, you're going to have to buy massive buildings that you have like one property manager who's going to just report up to you, or you got to team up or you got to invest passively in other deals. Well, in the most common area that I see this happening is, you know, somebody who's just starting off, they get really enamored by the type of returns they can make fix and flipping. But in the heart of the end of the day, they shouldn't be doing active real estate projects because they're a doctor or a tech worker or whatever, and they have a higher and better use of their time. So that's why it's important to kind of zoom out a little bit, you know, you know, not just along the timeline, but also like in your heart, like what freedom are you after? Because if you're after freedom of time, you should not be fixed and flipping. <laughs> that's just yeah. not something you should be doing. Or you're going to have to scale a massive business to elevate yourself out of the business so you can get your time back. So that's just really those five freedoms are in context. You can't just take them in the vacuum. You have to put them in context with what you want it, why do you want it, and who do you have to become to get it. In that why, that's where those five freedoms really become applicable. 
and because they become your North star on how to, you know, essentially set the vision for yourself and your future financial self. Right. That's kind of like, it comes back full circle to kind of how we started the show, which is the first things first, you have to know your goals. So if you're going to go back and maybe that's the first thing you should start with is the five freedoms. What do you really want to get out of real estate investing? What type of freedom do you really want? Then go design your investment strategy from there. And then if passive investing falls within your investment strategy, you have to ask yourself, do you need equity growth now? Do you need cash flow now? And that can help further kind of dictate your strategy from there. And I want to recognize some people do need a you know, and I, I fell in this category, you know, I didn't come from the tech world. I didn't have a high paying job. Neither did my husband. We had to do more active investing in order to get started to build up our nest egg. But as soon as we started hitting that critical mass, we started tilting the scales because we had already sat down and done that work for ourselves. We knew what we wanted and we knew we wanted our time back and choice on how we spent that time. So we had that vision in mind. We knew that five, 10 year plan. And so as soon as we could, we started tipping the scales to get out of the more active part of real estate into the more passive. So I just want to like acknowledge those people that are listening to this podcast going, sweet, Winnie, I can't just drop a $100,000 check or a $500,000 check on a passive deal and expect for it to work out for me to build my wealth as quickly as I want to. Yes, And start where you need to just know how you're going to spend your time, your attention in five to 10 years. What are those freedoms that you want? Because as soon as you start hitting that critical mass, move towards that freedom as quickly as you possibly can. No, this is phenomenal. Phenomenal advice for people out there who really want to get clear on their real estate goals and really what role they want to play. Like we talked about last week on the show, a lot of people want to get active in the game. And some people, you might have to get active. You need to build that nest egg. But if that's not in alignment with your goals... You're going to be very miserable when you're in the middle of managing multiple properties or having to consistently chase down wholesale deals or worry about that next flip if that's not truly what you want. So really great stuff right there. Is there anything, any final thoughts before we start uh, wrapping up today? Just ready, ready, fire, aim. Like you got to get started. If you're not started yet, you know, start somewhere. There's really no decision um, I mean, maybe they're, I'm talking to accountants, right? <laughs> they're like, yeah. time out, don't say this one. But there's really no decision that can't be undone or backtracked on. So the one decision that you can never undo is you decide never to get started, right? You can get started, right? Like you, you could get started five years from now, but you, there's an opportunity cost to that. So, um, you know, what I'm trying to say is like, if you're wanting to buy real estate or wanting to invest in a passive deal, if this is on your journey to financial freedom, figure out how to get started. And you can, you know, two years from now, you could be like, okay, great. Single family home was not for me. Let's pivot. Right. But if you never got started, you will never know. There you go. Wise advice. You got to take action. So if our listeners want to learn more about you, what you have going on, what would be the best way for them to do so? Yeah, they can reach out to me at Whitney at PassiveInvesting.com. That's my email. Um, if you want to uh, you know, hop on the phone and learn more about passive investing and if our deals are right for you, you can join me at PassiveInvestingWithWhitney.com. That's also the only place that you can get um, that free ebook as well. Okay, so we'll go ahead and we'll drop that in the show notes for everybody. I uh, want to thank you uh, for joining us again today and uh, everybody who's listening, uh, we'll catch you next week. Awesome. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, 
you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.